Oh, Father in heaven, that's our prayer. Show us Christ. Show us your glory through your word this morning. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your glorious truth. Open our hearts to receive your word this morning. Fill us with the joy of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Doctrine. What comes to mind when you hear the word doctrine? Perhaps you think of a dry, boring academic study. (sighs) Perhaps you think of theological debates that never seem to end. Not your cup of tea. Perhaps you think of someone in an ivory tower waxing eloquent on some abstract subject most people know nothing about and cannot possibly understand. Perhaps you think of a meaningless discussion about a topic that has nothing whatsoever to do with your life. Doctrine. Yay, you might be thinking, what a wonderful way to start a sermon. This morning, I want to walk through the book of Titus with you. I've just spent eight weeks preaching through the book of Titus at Grace Evangelical Free Church in Indianola. And Sound doctrine is one of the major themes of the book of Titus. And I want you to know up front that the things I just mentioned, Paul has none of those things in mind when he he talks about sound doctrine in this book. Rather, as we're going to see, Paul makes clear that what we believe about God and what he's revealed of himself and the world he's created, what he's revealed to us through his word applies to every aspect of our lives. Doctrine is every bit as important and relevant to our lives as the air we breathe this morning. If our doctrine is off, our lives will be off. If our doctrine is sound, our lives will reflect God's character. My favorite assignment in all of seminary took place in my New Testament survey class. Each week we had to read through a book or a few books of the New Testament and summarize each individual book, what the main idea of that book is, in a single sentence. It was a fascinating assignment because it forced me to boil down in one simple sentence the main point that the author was trying to communicate. I would heartily recommend you try it sometime if you've never done it. It's a fruitful activity. Although I'd recommend you probably start with one of the shorter books of the New Testament. Here's my one sentence summary of the book of Titus, what Paul is trying to communicate in one sentence. Here it is. Teach sound doctrine that accords with godliness. Teach sound doctrine that accords with godliness. I'm going to read through the entire book of Titus for us this morning. As I do, I want you to see if you can pick out these themes. Teaching, sound doctrine, and godliness. Paul doesn't always use those exact words, but the theme is there. Let me read through the book of Titus this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, 
which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of them, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of sound... Uh, excuse me, to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of good works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. The structure of my message this morning will follow my one-sentence summary of the book of Titus. First, I will walk through the book, unpacking how Paul calls Titus to teach sound doctrine and how it accords with godliness. Second, I'll unpack how the gospel grounds godliness in Titus. And then I'll end showing how godliness glorifies God. So we start with Paul's charge to Titus to teach sound doctrine that accords with godliness. I don't know about you, but I I used to tend to breeze over Paul's introductions in his letters, his epistles, eager to get to the good stuff. I've since learned that Paul's introductions are filled with glorious truths, and he often introduces the content of his letter in his introductions. Such is the case with the first four verses of the book of Titus. We learn that the Apostle Paul is writing his letter to Titus, his true child in a common faith and his delegate to the churches on the island of Crete. But notice the phrase that ends verse one. Paul is an apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect, of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Their knowledge of the truth is another way of referring to sound doctrine, and it accords with godliness. In the next section, in verses 5 through 9, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, plural, 
in every town, in every church. But these men aren't just good businessmen who run the church. Rather, they are godly men who are able to give instruction in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. The first thing we see is that they must be godly. They must be above reproach. Now this phrase above reproach doesn't mean that they have to be perfect. Otherwise we would have no elders in the church. Rather, what it means is that there are no major flaws in their lives that would bring reproach upon them, the church, or upon God. In other words, they should be models of what it looks like to follow Christ. Church members should be able to look at them and point to them and say, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. They're to live godly lives. Now, Paul breaks this down a little bit more. He gives two categories in which they're to be above reproach. First, they're to be above reproach in their relationships in the home, specifically with their wives, wife, and their children. Why? The way they shepherd their wife and their children, if they have children, says a great deal about how they will shepherd God's people, the church. There's some debate about what it means for an elder to be the husband of one wife, From digging into it, I think Paul is probably focusing on the elder being faithful to his wife. The ESV translates the next phrase, his children are believers. Um, This word believers also can mean faithful. And I think that's a better sense of what Paul is after here in the book of Titus. Scripture nowhere guarantees that believing parents will have believing children as much as we would love that to be the case, as much as we long for that and pray for that. Scripture nowhere that I know of promises that. Faithful children corresponds better with what Paul says here in the rest of the description in in this sentence. They're to have children who are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I think faithful children better fits that description there. So elders are to be above reproach in their relationships at home. Secondly, they're to be above reproach in their character. Paul says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In these two categories of elders being above reproach, Paul plainly points out how these men are to live godly lives before their congregation and before the world. And in verse 9, Paul lists one more requirement. They must have sound doctrine. Specifically, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Elders must have sound doctrine and they must live godly lives that reflect the sound doctrine they hold to. Are you seeing how this theme is unpacking and developing in the book of Titus? It continues in the next section, verses 10 to 15. We see that the elder's ability to refute those who teach false doctrine is more than simply empty words on a job description. The threat of false teachers is very real to these churches on the island of Crete. And they're every bit as dangerous to those churches as a gunman would be in a church today. Paul describes them as insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, teachers who teach what they ought not, For shameful gain. He describes them as liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, defiled, unbelieving, detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Unlike the elders, they do not hold to sound doctrine, 
nor do they live lives that reflect it. Let me ask you, is this who you want teaching your children's Sunday school class? I think not. And it is the job of elders to protect the flock from these people. So Paul says they must be silenced and rebuked sharply in the hope that they may be sound in their faith, that they too may have hold to sound doctrine and live lives that reflect sound doctrine. Just as doctrine, sound doctrine accords with godliness, so false doctrine accords with ungodliness. And just as elders are to teach sound doctrine, they must also stop others from teaching false doctrine and so protect the church. Well, this brings us to Titus chapter two. In contrast with these false teachers, Paul charges Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine in verse one. He breaks down this teaching with five groups of people in, in the next nine verses of chapter two. With five, five different groups of people. First, older men. Paul says older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. They're to live godly lives and be solid rocks in their faith. Similarly, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They too are to be solid rocks in their faith. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of who in this room fits the category of older men and older women. I'll let you decide that for yourselves. But I'm guessing there are many here today who have been following Christ for decades. Do you realize that those of us who are younger are looking for godly examples to follow? And let me share a word to those who are younger. Don't follow our culture by pushing to the periphery these older saints, those who are elderly as our culture pushes them to the sides of life, to the sidelines of life. No, we should honor, honor them and look upon them and learn from their teaching and their godly examples. We should honor those who have been following Christ for years. Gray hair should be a badge of honor in the church. Paul goes on to call older women to teach and to train younger women, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. I find it interesting that Paul does not call Titus or the elders to teach these younger women. He calls the older women to do that. Friends, this passage should radically shape the way churches do women's ministry. I don't have time to say much more, but I'd like to heartily recommend a couple of books that speak to this subject. First is a book by Susan Hunt called Spiritual Mothering. Spiritual Mothering, Susan Hunt. And the second one is written by Carolyn Mahaney called Feminine Appeal. Both books are excellent in unpacking this and what it means for women's ministry in the church. Well, Paul goes on to the next group of, of, of people, younger men in verse six. He charges them to be self-controlled, now, I think Paul includes Titus also amongst the younger men, so I don't think he's quite done with the younger men with just one simple description, being self-controlled. He charges Titus to model good works in his life and integrity, dignity, and sound speech in his teaching. The last group, Paul addresses his bond servants, a group probably more similar to employees in our culture than the slaves that we think of in our early American history. 
Paul charges them to submit to their masters, to be well-pleasing, to show good faith, not argumentative or pilfering. And we could summarize Paul's teaching to these five groups of people as godliness. He calls them to live godly lives. And based on verse one, this godliness accords with sound doctrine. He instructed Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine and he noted in the introduction that godliness accords with sound doctrine, with the truth. So even though Paul does not specifically unpack the sound doctrine in these first 10 verses, things like uh, the doctrines such as manhood and womanhood, uh, the son submitting to his father and the holiness of God, we see how these doctrines play out in the lives of everyday people in these 10 verses. Once again, we see these two themes walking together hand in hand. And Paul ends the chapter by telling Titus to declare these things, yet another reference to teaching sound doctrine. In chapter three, we see more of the same. Paul moves on from addressing specific groups of people within the church to addressing everyone. He charges Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, this is what sound doctrine looks like when lived out in everyday life. And Paul calls Titus to teach sound doctrine one more time in verse eight. He tells Titus, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, that their lives might be godly before the people around them. Finally, Paul ends his letter in verse 14 by calling the Christians in Crete once again to devote themselves to good works. Just in case we somehow missed it, Paul gives one final plea for godliness. I hope you can see how Paul is unpacking these, these themes of teaching and sound doctrine and godliness in this book to Titus. By way of application, I hope you can see how clearly how intertwined sound doctrine and godliness are, how practical sound doctrine is to our everyday lives. Where our doctrine is sound, our lives will reflect God's character. Where our doctrine is off, our lives will not be godly. So where we see sin in our lives, we should consider what false beliefs lie underneath the sin so that we can attack the sin at its root level. You see, having sound doctrine is more than just agreeing with an orthodox statement of faith. The reality is that we fail to believe what we know to be true from time to time. In his book, Gospel Fluency, speaking the truth of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life, Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt suggests we ask these four questions in this order. First, what am I doing or experiencing right now? Second, in light of what I'm doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself? What am I believing at the moment? Third, what do I believe God is doing or has done? And then fourth, what do I believe God is like? Asking these questions helps us get at the root of our sin and un- uncover the false beliefs that lie behind the sin in our lives. Let me share an example from my own life of how these questions are helpful. This past summer, there was a huge storm who came, that came through Indianola, bringing some 60-mile-an-hour winds. It did considerable damage, knocking down trees and even damage to several houses in town. 
Well, when the storm came through, I was in West Des Moines with my family, and I learned that the power had gone out in Indianola. Now, my basement has never flooded since I've owned it, um, and yet I've been having trouble with my backup sump pump, getting the float to, to go on and engage the backup sump pump. Well, with my power out and the main sump pump, uh, pump not working, I was concerned that my basement would flood, and here I am up in West Des Moines, hurrying home, traveling, nervous that my basement is going to flood. Well, right as I get into town, uh, there's a little bit of a traffic jam. A branch had fallen down over the highway, and traffic was stopped while they were getting the branch out of the way. So I took off, took an alternate route, and I'm driving on this alternate and someone alternate route. Someone went before me, and they were going maddeningly slow. <laughs> Why does this always happen? To make matters worse, when we got back to the highway, they had opened up traffic and it was moving again, and they were incredibly reluctant to pull out. So I gave them a, a, a gentle nudge on my horn just to encourage them to pull out um, at a moment when I thought there was plenty of space. Let me go through those questions again with my situation. What am I doing or experiencing right now? Well, if I'm honest with myself, I'm anxious and I was impatient. I was afraid that my basement had flooded and that I will, would have to endure the hassle and expense of cleaning it all up. Second question, in light of what I'm doing or experiencing, what do I believe about myself right now? Well, I'm in the moment was believing that it, it's up to me to keep my home from flooding. It's up to me to pay for the cleanup and repair. I'm also believing that my life should be rosy, free from any trouble or problems. By the way, that's something that God has not promised us. Not in this age. That day is coming, but is not here yet. Third, what do I believe God is doing or has done? Well, if I'm honest, I was believing that this is a surprise to God or that he doesn't care for me or that he won't keep my home from flooding or won't see my family through a flooded basement. Fourth, what do I believe God is like? In the moment, I, I was doubting God's sovereignty or that he didn't care for my needs. Do you see how these questions help unpack some of the false beliefs that lie underneath our sin? And they help us realize what we know to be true and help us fight for faith in God again. Help us to believe what we know to be true in the moment of temptation. Do you see how false doctrine, bad doctrine, lies at the root of ungodliness? And do you see how having sound doctrine produces godliness in us? A second application of this theme is that pastors or elders must both teach and model sound doctrine for God's people. I trust you recognize this from the requirements of elders and pastors in Titus chapter 1 as well as Paul's repeated charges to Titus to teach sound doctrine. Third application is that sound doctrine matters. It really matters in our lives. It matters for every moment of our lives. Pastor Bobby Jameson unpacks this idea in his book, Sound Doctrine. He writes this, God's character matters for how we live. When your life seems out of control, it matters that God is utterly sovereign. 
When you're going through a painful trial, it matters that God is good. When you're burdened by sin, it matters that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It matters that he promises to forgive our sin. Every facet of the Bible's teaching is relevant for how we live, whether that teaching is about the character of God, the acts of God, the nature of humanity, the world we inhabit, God's plan for the future, or anything else. So hopefully you see how this theme of teaching sound doctrine that accords with godliness runs throughout the book And I trust you're seeing why both sound doctrine and godly lives are absolutely critical to the health of God's church. But there are a couple of smaller themes to add on to this big theme. They kind of latch onto it and help support it. And I want to briefly address those as well before I close. First, the first sub-theme is this, that the gospel grounds godliness. The The gospel grounds godliness. There's a critical difference between Christianity and other religions, and it's this. In other religions, people do good works to earn God's favor. But in Christianity, we do good works because God has already bestowed favor upon us. And our good works add nothing to our salvation. We see a hint of this gospel theme in the introduction of Paul's letter, where where Paul speaks of our hope of eternal life. But this this smaller theme of of gospel really jumps out in chapters two and three. I've already shared how Paul addressed the five groups in the first 10 verses of chapter two, calling for them to live godly lives. But look at verse 11 with me, chapter two, verse 11. This verse begins with the word for. This word is a key conjunction usually giving a ground or a cause or a reason for what preceded it. In this case, the reason these five groups of people are to live godly lives is because God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Don't miss this connection between godliness and the gospel. We don't live godly lives to earn God's grace. We live godly lives because God's grace has already come to us, bringing salvation God's grace does even more than bring salvation from sin. Reading on, it also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. God's grace trains us to turn from sin and live godly lives now. And all of this while we wait for our blessed hope. Christ's second coming. And Paul continues this theme of grace in verse 14 of chapter two. He says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we see that our good works are grounded in the gospel. We live godly lives because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel sub-theme is even more pronounced in chapter three. I shared how Paul charges all Christians to live godly lives in the first two verses of chapter three. But look at verse three with me. We see the same conjunction, four. It begins the verse. 
Why are Christians to get, live the godly lives portrayed in chapter three, verses one to, one to two? Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Once again, we live godly lives because of the gospel. We were once slaves to sin, but God saved us. Isn't that good news? And just to be crystal clear that our good words works add absolutely nothing to our salvation, Paul plainly states that Christ saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the, wor- of the Holy Spirit. This world is filled with people who think that God will let them into heaven because they've lived good enough lives. Look back at verse three. Does verse three describe the type of person that God should let into heaven? No. It describes our fallen human nature that every human shares. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. And every single one of us deserves eternal punishment for our sin. I wonder if there are any here today who have lived thinking that your life has been good enough that God will let you into heaven. Friends, if that's you, please understand, none of us can live good enough to reconcile ourselves to God. Our sin against him is too great too terrible, too devastating. Friends, listen, God is not like Santa with a naughty list and a nice list. The reality is we are all naughty. God has a list, but only one. It's a list of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we don't work our way into that list. God grants it by his mercy. If you aren't absolutely sure this morning that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, let me challenge you this morning to plead with God for mercy. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ's death death on the cross as payment for your sin. He died to forgive you and reconcile you to God. If you are saved this morning, hear this. It is because of God's mercy, 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 and absolutely nothing else. God has washed you clean of your sins if you're saved this morning. He's regenerated you or made you born again. He's given you a new life in Christ. This is good news. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. We no longer live in the old way of verse three. Now we live in a new way because the gospel has transformed us. God has transformed us by the power of the gospel to live lives that reflect his nature and his character in this world.
So you can see that the gospel grounds godliness. The point for us is this. The gospel must be central to our lives. Pastor C.J. Mahaney writes in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, the gospel isn't one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building where all the classes take place. So the first point is that the gospel, or first smaller sub-theme, is that the gospel grounds godliness. It grounds or should ground every aspect of our lives. This brings me to the last, my last point and the second sub-point of the book of Titus, sub-theme, that adds to the greater theme of teaching sound doctrine that accords with godliness. And that's this, that godliness glorifies God. Godliness glorifies God. When we live lives that reflect God's nature, it brings him glory. Think about Jesus saying, let your good deeds shine before men that they may praise God and give glory to him. We see this most clearly in the book of Titus in three purpose statements that Paul gives in chapter two, verses five, eight, and 10. Notice the words that and so that that begin those verses indicating that Paul's giving a purpose for what he's just written. In this case, a purpose for why they're to live godly lives. You see, godliness is not an end to itself. It points to a greater end, a greater purpose, and that's to glorify God. The first two of Paul's purpose statements, uh, he kind of says them in the negative sense. If we think of it as a coin, this is the tail side of the coin. Paul says in verse five that godliness prevents the word of God, the gospel, from being reviled. Godly living hinders others from criticizing God's word, the gospel. In verse eight, Paul says that godliness shames opponents because they have nothing evil to say about us. And then in verse 10, he gives us the head side of the coin, the positive sense of the purpose for why we're to live godly lives, and that's this. Paul says that we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior when we live godly lives. Have you ever thought about that? When we got dressed this morning, did we put on the gospel? We adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in the way that we live our lives in this world. What a beautiful picture. Our lives put the gospel and its power on display for all to see. Now, this isn't to suggest that we can simply proclaim the gospel through our actions and we never have to use words. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Because he says in Romans 10, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming the gospel to them? And he concludes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we must proclaim the word of Christ we must also live it. No, the gospel must be proclaimed. It must be lived out. Failure to proclaim the gospel ignores the urgency of the, and the importance of our message. Failure to live it out invalidates the message that we proclaim. We must do both. And done together, God gets the glory. He gets the glory for the message because the gospel is all about Christ. It all points to Jesus. And he gets the glory for our godly lives because he is the one who has made us new creations. He is the one who gives us power to live lives that reflect him. So there you have it, the book of Titus. Teach sound doctrine that accords with godliness. Our godliness is grounded in the gospel and it brings glory to God. Isn't that a wonderful message this morning? Let me close this in a word of prayer. God, your word is awesome. It is 
life to us. It is our daily bread. It's my prayer this morning that you will have fed us through the book of Titus this morning, showing us Christ, showing us your glory, showing us your beauty, helping us to see you and rejoice in you and be satisfied in you. God, I pray that you would have given us ears to hear this morning. Now give us hearts to readily apply what we've heard, to live it out, transform us, change us into people that rightly reflect the truths we believe, these truths that we hold so firmly in our statement of faith. God, help us to live that out and help us to proclaim to this lost world the wonderful good news of Jesus. Give us boldness to speak these things to friends and family and neighbors and co-workers who don't know you. God, would you work that in us? Work that in this congregation. Work that in your church in America and your church in this world. Continue to build your church. We're trusting that you are and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We pray all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.